Many of us are seeing in a new year, bringing out our calendars and hanging them on the fridge or the kitchen wall, adding dates of birthdays, celebrations and important events. Not everyone in the world operates on the same calendar, of course. There are several different ways of measuring years and dates in operation globally right now. The Chinese, Ethiopian, Persian, Islamic, Jewish and Balinese calendars are all used. But the most popular calendar system in the world is now the Gregorian. And I want to take you back to when that calendar was introduced. I want you to imagine living in a world where your calendar, right down to the day and date of the week, is completely different to the calendar of other people, not living halfway around the world, but just a few miles away, just across a border. How would you know when to celebrate birthdays, name days or religious festivals? How would you write letters and relay information to others if dates were involved? How would you make travel plans if one country's dates differed to others? Well, this is exactly what happened in 1582, when Pope Gregory XIII introduced the Gregorian calendar, which replaced the Julian calendar. But not every country chose to adopt the new way of reckoning time. The change provoked serious debate, and in some cases, centuries-long resistance. How do we explain this opposition? What were the effects of two different calendars on the lives of early modern people? And what was the reason for changing the calendar in the first place? To learn about these horological changes and their impact, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Christina Faraday from the University of Cambridge, who last spoke to us about how the Tudors told the time. Dr. Faraday is a research fellow and director of studies at Gonville and Keyes College and is also an AHRC BBC New Generation thinker, specialising in Tudor and Stuart visual and material culture. I'm thrilled to speak with her again about the Gregorian calendar. Dr. Faraday, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely to be back. Can we start by talking about some of the mechanics of time? How do we reckon the passing of years? How does it work astronomically? This is such a fascinating thing that we probably don't mostly think that much about until we get something like a leap year and then the kind of disjunction between what we're doing down here and then what's going on in the solar system. The gap is revealed. But there are many different ways of measuring time in relation to astral bodies, and they don't all agree with each other. So we might take the Earth as a measure. So that's where we get the day from, when the sun, from our perspective, returns more or less to the same position in the sky or when the Earth has completed a revolution. But then there's also the month, and that's broadly based on the moon or the lunar cycle. Or we can base it on the sun, and that gives us the year. And as I said, the days and the months don't really line up neatly with the year. So these are all kind of independent time systems. But even then, there are different ways of measuring the length of a year. So there's a tropical year, which is when you base it on the Earth's axis and the angle. So that's what gives us the seasons. But there's also the sidereal year, which is where we see the same stars rising behind the sun. And the sidereal year is 20 minutes and 24 and a half seconds longer than a tropical year. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it can cause problems at bigger scales. Yes, it quickly adds up into hours and then days before you know it. Yeah, so there's no single objective way rightly to mark the passage of time, but obviously it's always a sort of cultural and societal decision. It's so interesting because it does always feel that it's not quite right. <laughs> that makes any sense. You know, I always feel like a month should be four weeks mm. long and it's very irritating when it's Yeah, not. and then the moon's in the middle and... <laughs> 
Exactly. Well, before Pope Gregory the Thirteenth established the new calendar that we use, more or less, called Gregorian, the calendar that was in use was the Julian calendar. So that's the one introduced by Julius Caesar, isn't it, in 46 BC or BCE? Mm. I suppose the reason that Julius needed to reform the calendar in the first place was that he'd inherited this calendar from ancient Egypt, and that had managed to get something like three months out of sync with nature. The spring solstice actually happened on a date that we would think of as midwinter, so it needed a lot of reform. And in collaboration with a Greek mathematician, several mathematicians and astrologers, but particularly Sosigenes of Alexandria, decided to treat the year as 360 five days and a quarter and then divide it into 12 months. So it became the predominant calendar in the Roman Empire and then it also was adopted in 325 AD as the calendar for the Christian Church so at the first Council of Nicaea. But actually other calendars were used beyond the Roman Empire so the Jewish calendar is still in use in the state of Israel based mainly on lunar months sometimes with an extra one added to line it with the solar year. And that counts from the Anno Mundi, the year of the creation of the world. So we're currently in the Jewish year 5783. So even still, there are different ways of measuring this and different numbers. Yes, I think there are six other calendars in use, as well as the Gregorian, which is fascinating, isn't it? Mm. I mean, to think about Pope Gregory introducing a new calendar in 1582 is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary thing to do. And it's interesting how it's framed. The papal ball doesn't announce reform, but rather the restoration of things to their proper places. But, you know, what was being restored or more perhaps more accurately corrected? So because of this Julian calendar of being 365 days and a quarter, that doesn't actually account for some imperfections in the solar system. So there are elliptical orbits. Anyway, it's 11 minutes too long. And as with that sidereal year we were talking about, it doesn't sound like much, but that amounts to one day gained every 114 years. So when the Council of Nicaea introduced this in 325 AD, the vernal equinox was on the 21st of March. And by the 16th century, the vernal equinox was around the 11th of March. And that's a huge problem for the Christians because Easter is based on the spring equinox as well as the full moon and Sundays and incredibly complicated calculations. But it basically meant that the human calendar and the seasons had been gradually parting ways. So things were taking place at the wrong times. That explains a question I didn't really notice I needed to ask, but why the Pope was doing this in the first place. Because it has religious signification. Yeah, absolutely. So it's mainly about Easter, but of course it's also about the Counter-Reformation. This is a time when large swathes of Europe have split from the Catholic Church, they're Protestants, they're refusing to recognise the Pope's authority. And the first order to reform comes several decades before the papal bull that actually announces how it's going to be done. And that's in the Council of Trent, which is, of course, the great Catholic Reformation Council. And the idea was, I think, that if they could get all Christian nations on a single calendar that was instituted by the Pope, it would be a way of reasserting the Pope's authority and uniting this divided Christendom. Ah, well, that doesn't work. Was the Gregorian reform at all related to scientific developments. I mean, I know they're not really called science at this time, but if we think of Copernicus's discovery that it wasn't the sun going around the earth, but vice versa from 1543, is that at all affecting this development in terms of the calendar? Well, that's an interesting question, because obviously we think of that theory as one that was eventually suppressed by the Catholic Church. But that actually, the kind of banning of Copernicus's book didn't happen until quite a lot later. And initially, some cardinals, in fact, were really interested in Copernicus's theories, and Protestants also resisted them. So it's not a sort of Catholics versus Protestants issue. 
But the Gregorian reform wasn't directly intended to embrace these discoveries. One of the people in charge was against Copernicus's theories. It's not a direct thing, but Copernicus's calculations did end up being used as the basis for the calculations because they influenced a German astronomer called Erasmus Reinhold, and he did some calculations which the Gregorian calendar reform used. So Copernicus was responsible, but not in a direct way. So who was responsible for calculating the Gregorian calendar? There was an Italian doctor and astronomer called Aloysius Lilius, and there's actually a crater on the moon named after him, I was reading. And he wrote the original proposals for the reform. His brother presented them to the Pope in around 1575, but he actually died in 1576, so he never saw this great reform of 1582. But his idea was basically to correct the length of the year from 365 and a quarter days to 365.2425 days. So that's a bit closer approximation of reality. And in practice, that means adjusting the number of leap years. So whereas before there were 100 leap years in 400 years, now there would only be 97. And that's why we have this rule that years divisible by 100 are only leap years if they're also divisible by 400. So 2000 was a leap year, but 2100 won't be a leap year. Lydia's sort of ideas were adopted by the Pope and expanded by the head of the Calendar Commission, who was Christopher Clavius, Jesuit German mathematician. He was head of mathematics at the Collegio Romano, and he was the one who rejected Copernicus's theory. So that's one reason why we can't cite that as a major influence on the reform. But it was Clavius who looked at these calculations by Lilius and said, OK, if we take 10 days out of the calendar, we'll set the calendar back to the time of Nicaea. And they chose that time as a mark of respect for that first council of the church. So reasserting the authority of the councils of the church, which was something that Protestants rejected. And that was felt to be good enough, even though by the time of the council of Nicaea, it had already drifted since the time of being introduced by Julius Caesar. This is all so interesting. I mean, this is an onion. The fact that actually what we have here is very, very much a religious decision, that even though it's going to be out, they're going to set it back to the the Council of Nicaea, and it's going to be something that very much vested in that papal ball of restoration. This is not an innovation. It is a restoration. Absolutely. And in a way, the language of restoration, that is classic across all areas of the 16th century. Being new, definitely not a desirable thing. And that also causes problems, as we'll see, with the way that the new dates of things are advertised as well. What effect did it have practically on things like dates and religious festivals and the liturgical year? The implementation was slightly mishandled, I think. So in February 1582, it was announced that 1582 would be the year of adjustment. So they said 10 days will be removed in one big lump at the end of October. So you'd go to bed on Thursday, the 4th of October, 1582, and you'd wake up on Friday, the 15th of October, 1582. So the weekdays weren't affected, but these 10 days would disappear from the calendar. And they chose that period because it would avoid major festivals of the church. It also set the new year at the 1st of January, which previously the new year had been celebrated on 25th of March in most places. So that was another kind of reform. But it was announced in February. And the almanacs for the year, the calendars, had already been printed. And of course, it would take time for this to all filter through. So actually, the reform happened at different times in different places. Yes, so lots of people are going to be confused. They're going to be turning up for things on the 15th of October and they may be radically different days. (laughs) Now, the ambition, you say, for the Gregorian calendar had been to unite Christendom once again, at least temporarily. Did it have any authority beyond the Catholic Church, beyond papal states? 
was issued by papal bull. So in and of itself, no, it was a religious edict. But because it affected the civil calendar, before it could be adopted anywhere else, governments of each country had to agree, basically, before it could be enacted. So most Catholic countries were amenable to this. That was fine. Spain, Portugal, parts of Italy, Poland, they all adopted on time. They deleted the days in October. It went as smoothly as the Pope had hoped. In France and Flanders and much of the Netherlands, it got to them a bit later. They adopted it in December in 1582. But of course, deleting the last 10 days of December means deleting Christmas. So in Brussels, where you've got Protestants and Catholics, the Protestants celebrate Christmas on the 15th of December, because they're not particularly fussed about the exact dates of things. But the Catholics are very upset about it and celebrate on the 4th of January, old Christmas. So there's huge amounts of confusion. And even though it's meant to unite people, it ends up dividing them further. And then again, other Catholic countries like Austria, Switzerland, Bohemia, they adopt it in the following years, and then Hungary gets it in 1587. January on Gone Medieval is all about mysteries, the impossible riddles of medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? There were also tidings that Prester John was on the march. What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Linguists have worked on it. Code breakers, especially after World War II, were very interested in seeing if they could break the code. But so far, nobody has, as far as we know, even come close. Did kings and princes really die when history is assumed they did? Our liege lord, Edward of Carnarvon, meaning Edward II, is alive and in good physical health and in a safe place. I'm Matt Lewis, and all through January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. What about the reception in Protestant states? Thinking, of course, of England, because Henry VIII had, of course, separated England from the authority of Rome. His daughter Elizabeth was on the throne when Pope Gregory's ball was issued, and she was supreme governor of the church, so she had the authority, presumably, to accept the new calendar. I know that when news of the ball reached Francis Walsingham, Elizabeth I's principal secretary, he consulted the court astronomer, Dr John Dee. So do we know anything of Dee's opinion on the calendar? Yes, and this is a really interesting episode in English history because you would think that England would be resistant to this. It's a papal suggestion, but they're also interested in trading well with their neighbours and they don't want to be out of step with everyone else if there are good astronomical reasons not to be. As you say, Francis Walsingham, he is of the Gregorian reform. That's actually in autumn 1582. He's hearing about all the confusion that's happening in Brussels and places. And yeah, he gets in touch with John Dee, who's not an uncontroversial figure. He talks to angels with his scrying glass. He's interested in magic. He's been accused of witchcraft in the past, but he's also very thorough. And I just can really imagine Francis Walsingham saying to John Dee, look, John, there's this new Catholic calendar. They're deleting 10 days. 
Do you think we should do it too? John Dee drops everything, off he goes, and he comes back and he goes, the calendar is 11 days wrong. I can just imagine them being like, we didn't ask you to do that. So there's this problem, and John Dee spots this problem, that the Gregorian reform is only to the time of the Council of Nicaea, and he thinks if you're going to change it, why not go the whole hog and reset it to the time of Christ? That surely makes more sense. And in quite a clever move, he suggests that England should start a new trend, the Elizabethan calendar, which will be so manifestly correct that the Pope will just have to adopt that instead. And this is all part of his kind of private ambition for a Protestant English empire, which he calls the British Empire because he's thinking of ancient Britons and King Arthur. So he wants them to go even further, basically, and do this much better reform. And he also comes up with a really clever way to introduce it. So rather than taking off 11 days in a big lump, he removes a few days from the end of each month between May and September. And having come up with all this stuff, he presents the ideas to Elizabeth and her ministers in this beautifully illuminated treatise. There's a bit of history, and he writes a long poem at the end where he compares Elizabeth to Caesar and himself to Sosigenes, Caesar's Greek astronomer. I just love that. Imagine if the scientists at CERN summarised their findings in a bit of doggerel at the end of their journal articles for the lay people. So he presents this beautiful document saying, let's go ahead, let's do this, let's do the whole thing. And what's the response? I think the councillor says this isn't really what we asked and the whole point of looking into this was to see if we could be in line with the continent. So William Burley goes to Dee, he goes to interview him and he says, would 10 days be good enough? And Dee grudgingly concedes that yes, 10 days would be better than nothing. And at least that would mean England was on the same date as their neighbours. And I think there was a general assumption from Walsingham and from Burley that this would basically all go through. But then Walsingham asks the bishops and the bishops are a bit annoyed. They basically see this as the church's jurisdiction. The calendar has always been a sort of ecclesiastical matter. And I think they're pretty riled that this was all decided before they got a chance to talk about it. And it's all being rushed through as well. So they come up with a very long list of objections. And their main one is obviously, this is a papal reform. Why would we go with that? The Pope's just excommunicated Elizabeth. So we're adopting one papal bull, but this other one that says that Elizabeth, you should commit treason against her, that is very inconsistent. But they also argue that it's impractical, that it doesn't matter for salvation. They come up with this huge list. And at the end, they say, and what's the point? Because the latter day is approaching. It's nearly the end of the world. Why would you even bother reforming the calendar? Yes, that's the spirit. Give up now. It's all coming to an end. (laughs) So that idea must have held for a hugely long time because England only adopts the Gregorian calendar in 1752. So do we have debates throughout that period? Yeah, various attempts are made. So this kind of original John Dee's revised proposal gets dropped, basically. There's too much going on in the Parliament. And then after that, there are a few attempts in the 17th century. Isaac Newton's involved in one attempt in 1699. And yeah, I think basically it comes down to still these fears about aligning with Catholic countries and also some anxieties about the calculations used to determine the date of Easter. Again, this sort of huge problem in the Christian calendar. But also resurfacing was this issue of whether the calendar should be actually reformed 11 days. So John Dee's attempt early on keeps coming back. Other scientists come up with this and say, you know, 11 days is more proper. So that kind of stymies it as well in lots of cases. So you mentioned earlier that on continental Europe, the calendar was adopted by a number of countries in the 1580s. What can you tell me about its reception and about the countries that perhaps resisted it as well? Well, England wasn't the only Protestant country to resist this. Prussia was the first Protestant country to accept it, and that was 1611, so that's quite a long time. 
Denmark and Norway, that was 1700. Sweden was a complete disaster. They agreed to the change in 1700, but they decided to do it in a series of leap days in leap years from 1700 to 1740. So that would have been 11 leap days overall. But that went so badly that already by 1712, they went back to the Julian calendar because it caused so much confusion. And then they only adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1753. So England isn't actually the latest to adopt it in 1752. But there's this historical legend that it caused the calendar riots. So this idea that ignorant people thought the government really was taking 11 days from them and they wanted them back. And there's no record of this really having happened. It seems to be a misunderstanding based on a Hogarth painting, which was about an election, not about a calendar riot. But it did cause problems in society, for sure. In agriculture, there was a big tradition of using saints days for local law, for planting knowledge. When the saints days come earlier in the year, you can't use them according to traditional rhymes, to plant your potatoes or whatever. Although reformers framed this as restoring the connection between the human and the natural calendars, for many people, I think it would have felt as though the times were now out of joint with the seasons. So interesting. And it's remarkable to me that for years, therefore, most Protestant and most Catholic countries were 10 days adrift. They were literally existing on different days, as it were. I mean, is it possible to know anything of the psychological impact of this horological gap? It's such an interesting question. And as with all these things, you just wish that these people had written down convenient reflections on the psychological impact of the difference. It certainly would have increased the feeling of distance between Protestant and Catholic countries. And that was partly the intention. The Protestants didn't adopt the calendar in order to signal that they were different and that they disagreed with the Catholics. I guess we could maybe imagine it as like time difference now people in Australia getting the new year ahead of us, something like that. But yeah, it's hard to know. Well, I'm always struck with that with Spain, because Spain and Portugal should technically be on the same time zone as the UK, but aren't in order to be in the same time zone as the rest of continental Europe. Yeah, so similar things still going on. So for those involved in overseas commerce and travellers, I mean, soldiers, sailors, diplomats, ambassadors, Those who had to move regularly between the Gregorian and the Julian would have found dates rather tricky, one assumes. Do we have any evidence about this at all? It must have been really tricky. They've got to calculate credit and interest. But if you're trading with a reformed calendar country or a non-reformed calendar country, you have to work that out across different currencies and different calendars. And then there's this habit of marking things by religious feasts. And of course, movable feasts might have been celebrated at different times again. So that's really confusing. And we know that in the 16th century, John Dee was complaining about the lack of numerical skills that the merchants had. And Keith Thomas has shown that in the later 17th century, that was still the case, that tables and formulas were being used rather than sort of actually working stuff out. And it must have caused problems for communication as well. If you're a soldier or a diplomat, you really need to know exactly when an event took place and what order it occurred in relative to other events particularly in fast-moving sort of politics. Yeah, if you're constantly having to work out where someone's writing from, it must have been extremely confusing. Yes, I really take your point about relating things back to holy days. The work I did on 16th century France, they often referred to the St. Madeleine Day, or they might refer to St. Jean, the Midsummer's Day, or, you know, Michaelmas comes up. 
These are ways that they would talk about time rather than in reckoning actually mostly by months and by days. They tend to be talking about it in relation to these religious festivals. You know, it was three weeks after St. Madeleine or it was a couple of weeks before Saint Michel. And so if those festivals move and their sense of that time moves, then it must have felt really disruptive, I would have thought. Yeah, I think it must have felt like somehow the ground wasn't quite even anymore. The sort of feeling of things being moved around without you really maybe even necessarily understanding how or why, because if you didn't have that much international travel experience, as most people didn't, then it probably wouldn't have made much difference to you either way. And how was the new calendar disseminated, especially given that Gregory has missed the almanac production deadline? As a papal bull, that would have been disseminated through printing. And then once agreed by the civil authorities, the date change could be publicised through a sermon, but also announcements and notices and obviously revised almanacs so they could print a new one. And almanacs, of course, had all sorts of information in them, weather forecasts, tide tables, advice about medicine and agriculture. And some of these almanacs were actually printed with dual date tables so that you could take the dates of letters and investments and things in theory. But of course, in practice, again, much confusion. So when England did adopt the Gregorian calendar, there was this question of whether to keep events like fairs on the same date as before, which would actually be a different time of year, or have it at the old time of year, which would be a new date. And in both cases, you could say, this is the same as before, where you could advertise it with continuity. So confusion abounds at least for a couple of years. Of course, it is an opportunity for commerce. It's a business opportunity, isn't it, for the almanac makers to create calendars. Yes, you've you already need another got one. one for this year, but you, you need the new and improved one. I know there's one theory from Anne Lake Prescott that such sort of double calendar type stationery was evidence of a growing multiculturalism, or at least a broader awareness of others. What do you make of that argument? I think that's a really interesting point. I think it must have contributed, but to a process that was already happening for a variety of reasons. So this is obviously the time of the new world, other cultures are being discovered, other religions. I think if you're aware of current affairs in the 16th century, it's an incredibly mind-expanding time. But even on a smaller scale, I think ordinary people already worked with multiple temporalities for different purposes. So there's the cyclical thing of the seasons, the rituals of the church, even things like weekly domestic tasks. And then there's also this linear sense of the new reign of a monarch or national historical moments or even the descent of your family. In England, and in many other places, events were often dated according to the year of the monarch's reign, but counting from their accession day. So there's already a sense of relativity and also country's knowledge in timekeeping. So I think this kind of dual date system would certainly have expanded it, but it's something that's already present. Finally, I wonder, Christina, if you think the Gregorian calendar might have influenced people who were predicting doom. I'm thinking that if you've got Gregory's astronomers calculating dates into the future and you've got to map, I don't know, Nostradamus's predictions onto that, for example, how does that line up? Does that matter at all? Certainly, I think this reform was made with the idea that the calendar would be perpetual, at least correct in the long term. So John Dee's poem that he wrote for Elizabeth promised that 300 years shall not remove the sun one day from this new match. So clearly, long term thinking into the future, at a point when many people, including the bishops, were saying the world is nearly over, you know, that goes against some of that doomsaying. 
But at the same time, predictions of the end of the world never stopped. <laughs> it's always nearly the end of the world for someone. And actually, the idea that the calendar might reset human time or somehow usher in this age of new kind of harmony with nature probably accorded with some millennialist theories that the second coming of Christ would be either preceded or possibly followed by his thousand year reign on earth that was newly harmonious. So I think people can always find a way to make the evidence say what they want. Well, you haven't done that today. You've talked brilliantly from the evidence <laughs> to make a very plausible case. So thank you so much for taking us through this fascinating business of introducing a new calendar and all of the effects of that in terms of social and religious and psychological change. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify, and please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.